Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI president Robert Dorr, and we'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Banter, which we're recording here in Dallas at the Old Parkland Conference. And our guest today is John Yu, who will be uh, doing a starlight chat this evening with Justice Clarence Thomas. Um, So just a brief intro of John. He's a non-resident senior fellow with us at AEI, where he focuses on international law and the U.S. Constitution. He's also a law professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and a visiting fellow at Hoover. He's worked in all three branches of government, including as an official in the Department of Justice, where he worked on national security and terrorism issues after the September 11 attacks. He's also served as general counsel of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee and has been a law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, as I mentioned, we're going to hear from him tonight, um, and U.S. Court of Appeals Judge Lawrence Silberman. His most recent book, Defender-in-Chief Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power, was published in 2020. Thanks for joining us on Banter, John. Thanks, Phoebe. And you didn't mention that next year is going to be my 20th anniversary at AEI. Congratulations. (laughs) That's very notable. (laughs) It's it's really great to have John with us uh, for lots of reasons. There's a lot going on at the court. We can ask him about that. Of course, we have him here in Dallas for the old Parkland Conference on issues concerning black upward mobility, and and he's our sort of uh, reliable interviewer of Justice mm-hmm. Thomas. Mm-hmm. So he's done that before at AEI. I'm the AEI Thomas Whisperer. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it, it's going to be great tonight to have you question him, and I just just give us a little sense of your history with him. You were a clerk, mm. and what years were you a clerk? Was, was there a big case when you were oh. a clerk with him? Uh, not only did I clerk for him when you clerk for a year, but uh, several of the cases we worked on are ones that we've talked about at this conference, although people haven't, you know, know them by name. Um, so I clerked for him in the uh, 1994 to 1995 Supreme Court term. And in that year, the court decided the case called Adirond, which banned the use of race in all federal government programs, uh, federal government, you know, contracting and welfare programs. We decided a case called Missouri versus Jenkins, which was uh, a case about school desegregation, where Justice Thomas wrote a lengthy opinion. Uh, it's also a case, uh, a, court, uh, a court year where the court decided um, a case called Lopez, which placed for the first time since the New Deal limits on the reach of the Commerce Clause for Congress. So it was a really significant year. It was really... Justice Thomas was, I think he was 45 years old yeah. at the time. <laughs> and so it was uh, uh, great to clerk for someone who's so young, thinking things out for the first time, and you're kind of his sounding board, really. And at this conference, as Phoebe knows, and you know, because you've been here for the last uh, day or so, is we've got a great collection of leaders from the African-American community, both community leaders and academics. Um, they have a, you know, I would say they tilt a little bit to the right of center. They're more likely to be conservative because that was the one of the purposes of the conference. Mm. But what's been remarkable, to me at least, is mm. the extent to which he's really a... Uh, you know, a hero to these, this crowd and how warmly he is received by people in the movement of helping African-Americans move up in the United States. It's interesting. Uh, yeah, I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of the participants at this conference. And let me just say, this is 
uh, I think one of the reasons why think tanks should exist. I can't imagine a conference like this being held at a university because people are exploring every kind of idea from all angles. It's been uh, wonderful. You're right. Justice Thomas is a hero, uh, I think, in part because he's someone who has received all the arrows of criticism and he's come through the other side with his beliefs intact. And so I think a lot of them, whether they agree or disagree with him, they admire his uh, fortitude. But the other thing about watching Justice Thomas while he's been here is I've never seen him like this. He's like he's back in high school. He is so excited. I mean, he's been to every single minute of the programs. He's writing, taking notes. He's genuinely intellectually engaged with uh, these issues, which are very near and dear to him, of course. And so you've been watching this, and you know the, the writing of Glenn Lowry and Shelby Steele and Ian Rowe from AEI and yes. Jason Riley. What are the themes mm. that he hears in their voices that, that resonate with him that, that, you're, that you recognize because mm. you've seen it over the years? Yeah. And the interesting thing, I think the reason he's so excited is because these are things that are not part of the judicial role. Yes. These are things he's been thinking about before he was a judge. <clears throat> and in a way, I, my view is becoming a judge took him on a path where he can no longer participate in these kinds of policy issues. So one big, Robert, this is your area. You're more the expert on this, the, right? the, the decline of the family. How do government programs hurt families or help them? Uh, that's a ringing bell, a, a clarion call, actually, to action. And I think he is so interested and engaged on that issue because, of course, they were talking about that in 1980 when they had the original Fairmont Conference. And he still wonders what to, you know, what can be done. It's not the courts or the Supreme Court's not going to fix the decline of family, not just among blacks, but in America. But and also self-reliance or getting mm-hmm. getting away from government dependency. He, he, that, that is personal a responsibility. personal responsibility, personal mm-hmm. agency. Those are big themes for him. Mm-hmm. Education, of course, the importance of education. I know uh, really the people who've been most important in his life have been teachers. Uh, you know, he, he talks often about the nuns he had when he was, the nuns who were his teachers when he was in school. Um, his negative reaction, perhaps, to being a Holy Cross in Yale yeah, Law School. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then also encountering people after school who influenced him at intellectual level, obviously, most importantly, Thomas Sowell for him. But it just shows, you know, he's on this intellectual journey. Uh, and the being a Supreme Court, this is unusual. Being a Supreme Court justice, to me, is only small one dimension of all the things he's interested in thinking about. So we heard, Phoebe, in the conference, I would say, a lot along the themes of... Um, America has to get beyond race and 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 uh, um, and move move past, uh, as Ian Rowe would say, uh, viewing every every problem of Black Americans as being about racial bias. Mm. Um, I think Justice Thomas agrees with that. Um, I don't. And I can't remember this, but you know the the classic line that that the progressives uh, like to mention from the current court is mm-hmm. Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts' line: "The way to stop discriminating on race is to stop discriminating on race." Does yeah. Justice Thomas uh, does he identify with that position? Is that how you view his jurisprudence? Yes. In fact, he was there before Chief Justice Roberts <laughs> got there. <laughs> I think, um, uh, for example, uh, in my the term I clerked for him. There was this famous uh, desegregation case that came out of Kansas City, and uh, the first line of the opinion, he personally wrote it. I can attest to that. He said, it never ceases to amaze me that just because something is black, it is assumed to be inferior. And he was talking about schools. He said, there's nothing wrong with having 
schools where most of the students are black. But in today's world, that's seen as wrong. He said, we should just care about their test scores and what they're learning and th- stop caring about the race of the students in the class. So he, 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 you know, he's been uh, uh, thinking this way for 30, you know, 30 years. Um, so I, I, but I think you're quite right, right, Robert, that that is a theme of the conference. But at the same time, I'm also, I don't think Justice Thomas would say race doesn't matter. It's just race doesn't matter in the eyes of the government. He would never say, you know, race, just race is part of who we are is, you know, undeniably too. Um, now, I, I have to, I want to come back to that because I have some further discussions of that, that, that line of, of, of discussion. But we have to ask, given uh, the period of time we're in right now, which is this odd period where a draft opinion has mm-hmm. been leaked. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's alleged that it has five votes and it's written by Justice Alito and it will mm-hmm overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, in your conversations with him and your experience with him this weekend at this conference, do you sense any anxiety on his part? Is he upset by it? Is there, is oh. there what's, what's, what's your feel of his mood given this really quite startling controversy? You're going to play this podcast after we do the interview tonight, right? Because oh, yeah, you're yeah. ruining all yeah. my lines. Okay, 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 <laughs> okay. Okay, well, okay, good. I don't want to give everything away, but yes. I, I, you know, he. Um, one thing you're seeing in the conference is very consistent with things he thought. If you go back and look at the original Fairmont conference papers, uh, which I tracked down, and actually is the first thing he ever published under his own name is his little contribution. And if you go by the thought, the theme there. The theme to these days, and I think the theme with the court that bothers him so much, and I know this bothers you, Robert, is the uh, attack on our institutions. Mm-hmm. The leaking of the opinion is an attack on the integrity of the courts, not just the Supreme Court, all the federal courts. I mean, there's, I can only think maybe one or two times when any <clears throat> opinion at any level of federal court has ever been leaked this way. Um, it's fundamental to the difference between law and politics. You know, politics is just, you know, pressuring, lobbying, and voting. The law is persuasion, you know, evidence, argument, you know, right? It's not just about voting. It's not just about pressure. And so the leak is trying to turn the judiciary into just another version of politics. So that attack on an institution, I know, deeply, deeply bothers him and worries him because that's the theme of our, that's the lesson I take away from this conference, actually, is that in all these areas, from the 60s on, we've seen just this unending assault on the institutions that are the foundations of family, community, schools, and so on. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit to just as someone that was a clerk and was entrusted with some of these materials, just I think we all are so accustomed to leaks now that we're yeah. almost not as shocked <laughs> as we should be that yeah. this is so unprecedented. Just from kind of behind the scenes of having been in that environment and trusted with some of those materials, how do you react? To- oh, well, personally, I think this is also a yeah, great breach of trust between uh, the justices and probably their clerks. I like 95% certain it's a clerk that leaked it if you look at the document and where it was in the process. And also only the clerks would think you would care about the whole 90 pages of it, (laughs) right? If you're just leaking in Washington, you would just leak the first five pages because then you know that's the executive summary. Who leaks the whole report? Only a law geek would do that, right? Someone who's that? I haven't heard that one yet. Oh, no, that's that's so obvious, (laughs) right? And actually the the first five pages are the most emotional. If you're going to read anything to really get a sense of Justice Alito's temper, yeah. you would read the first five, six pages. The rest of it is a sort of 
boring, clerk-driven, you know, like standard prose. The first six pages, I'm sure, Alito wrote by hand. It's mm-hmm. so, uh, it really is, it's, it's a really internal, you look at the guy's mind. It, it has no citations, right? Like it doesn't have all the attributes of, you know, committee-written work. So I think it's a great loss of trust because after this, think if it, if it, this continues, how can the justices circulate drafts amongst themselves anymore? Would they become like the executive branch or the Congress? And they just, every draft comes out and important case is going to get leaked. Every vote's going to get leaked. Then it will, then the court could become like a legislature, mm-hmm. right? They won't become this collective body that even though they have differences, they still try to reason together. They try to persuade in good faith. That could all, you know, that could all start to disappear. And then if you're the American people, you say, well, if they're just like politicians, why should we trust them to interpret the Constitution if they're just like the other branches? Mm-hmm. Now, we will, this Banner podcast will be released sometime next week. And what's the next step? What is, what is your TikTok on the time uh-huh. of, the, of the final vote by the justices and the release of the opinion? Could it be Monday morning? Could it be, or what's, what, where so, are we in the so court's part, calendar? Yeah, so part of the leak is not just the opinion, uh, in a way, that's the most reliable thing because you read that, that's clearly a Supreme Court opinion. It's really uh, done at a very high level. Disagree or agree with it. The quality of it is very high. Yes. Um, but there's all their leaks attached to it. Right? So you can't tell from the draft who voted for it. But according to the other leaks, there's five justices who are on board with overturning Roe and have not switched position. According to the leaks, Chief Justice Roberts really hasn't voted yet. He's trying to figure out a middle ground. And of course, According to the leaks, there's no dissents been circulated yet. So uh, all that's usually happening about now. So that February draft, it's interesting. It was sent, uh, it was leaked at a time when that would be the most extreme draft. Mm-hmm. After that draft, there's haggling, negotiation. It would almost certainly be watered down by now. And so uh, there, I think the reason the timing, that's because your point, the timing of it is the reason it's leaked in May, basically, is because... There's only two months left now before all the opinions get released. Mm-hmm. Whoever leaked it realized if the votes haven't changed by early May, no one's probably going to be flipping their vote uh, sans or without some kind of excess external pressure being brought to get someone to flip the vote. Like Chief Justice Roberts allegedly did 10 years ago in the Obamacare case when he, according to reliable press reports, I think he changed his vote on a causal pressure that President Obama brought to bear. Mm. Um, so the next thing that would happen is that these dissents, concurrences, separate writings all have a chance to circulate. So we normally wouldn't get an opinion for seven more weeks. But if you're worried about pressure being brought and that someone might change their vote and you're an institutionalist, you don't want that to be the way it's going to be in the future. You might try to rush the opinion out now. Get it done. Yeah. And that's the last thing on this. And then we'll move on. <clears throat> uh, but... Justice Thomas did make news with a comment about what he was observing. Hmm. And I think the quote was something along the lines of, we're getting to a point where people don't want to accept decisions they don't like, and they're refusing to comply with the rule of law. Is that what he said? Is that what yes, he meant? And, yes, and he just for our listeners, tell us what, what he meant by that. What is he saying? What, well, what? Uh, the questioner tonight will ask follow-ups on that. So that's not the only line that will come out of it. Okay. <laughs> I'll link it to the full video. But the, uh, no, no, you don't have to do that. Make, yeah. Them, yeah, yeah. <laughs> make them pay a fee to access the AI <laughs> website before they get to see the video. Now, the, um, what he means by that is uh, there are going to be people on both sides, pro-life, pro-choice. All they care about is winning. 
on abortion. It doesn't matter how they get there. That is fundamentally not a rule of law approach where what matters is not really who wins or loses, but the principle, and that that principle then applies to everyone equally. The problem, I think, with the leak is that for him, for me, for you know, people who believe in the rule of law, is it is sacrificing the independence of a judiciary that protects the rule of law just to win on abortion. So what's going to happen? I mean, the, think of all the things that are at risk. The Supreme Court's not just there to decide abortion cases. In fact, their more important yeah. role is to defend all of our individual rights when we're in the minority, to protect our Bill of Rights, to protect the rights of criminal suspects. That's all under, whoever leaked it said, that's not as important yeah. as winning on abortion. And right. that's a, that's what I mean, that's a, that's a really political way of thinking at not a rule of law way. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a great pleasure and, and, and an honor to have Justice Thomas with us for this conference. And I know everybody here appreciates it. And of course, his own personal story feeds into the lot of what we've been discussing. So it's, it's been really wonderful to have him. Um, I'd like to turn for a minute to the, the other part of John Yu. Uh, oh, so boring uh, now. Yeah, no, no. No, 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 no. There's, there's a part of you that's quite interesting, and, and that is, um, you know, banter is intended to, to flesh out the work of our great scholars. And so, John, uh, maybe it's been told somewhere, but, but I haven't heard it been told. You, the book Phoebe mentioned um, mm-hmm. is a book about presidential power mm-hmm. and Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And you, you could characterize it as a pro-Trump book. Mm. And then in the period of time between the election and uh, January 6th, mm-hmm. you were involved in the mm-hmm. discussions with the vice president mm-hmm. um, and helping him make the decision mm-hmm. uh, to abide by the vote of the Electoral College. And could you just tell our listeners about that? Have you come clean on all of Can this? Can I just or is tell the stuff? listeners that Robert is trying to get me subpoenaed by the January 6th committee? Because I actually have never told this story, but okay. uh, I will. And then I'm going to send you my lawyer's bill, Robert, which would be pro bono. So I'm going to well, represent we, myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> never, so it, it's very, so yeah, my book was finished the summer of 2020, and it kind of went through all the constitutional controversies over Trump. And I tried to make the case that take away the tweets and what he was saying, what he was actually doing legally was pretty much in line with uh, what past presidents had done and that he was trying to actually protect himself with executive power, not use it uh, in an aggressively affirmative way. So, for example, the Mueller investigation, he's using executive power to defend himself from investigation, and he never fired Mueller, which would have been within his presidential powers, I argued. So after the election... um, I uh, consulted with people. I was people in the vice president's office reached out to me um, because I'd worked with them many years before, and uh, I had written a paper uh, at AEI about the electoral college and how it worked and why you know all the things the framers. Did. And I had uh, you know written a little bit about what happens if the electoral college fails, which a lot of people don't think or write about until you know the last year or two. But I've been thinking about it for a long time just because I thought it was interesting. And so I went through with the vice president's office all the mechanisms that exist after the vote that people don't think about. Yeah, you know, they see the vote in November, they assume oh well then it's just over. But there are all these intermediate steps that get you from there to certification by the vice president that Joe Biden's the winner. And so I walked him through um, the arguments uh, for and against. Um, I actually had probably more sympathy for the argument that the vice president has some kind of power, but the Constitution is silent. It doesn't actually tell you who decides. 
if there's a dispute that an electoral, electoral vote is real. Like they just, they, not only did they not address it in the first constitution, when they addressed it in the 12th Amendment, they still didn't address it. They just didn't do it. So I said, look, the most important thing, uh, I said this to the vice president's office, is whether there's a real dispute over an electoral vote. Once there's a real dispute, then there's a system. But you can't let people just make up that there's a dispute. There has to be a court has to find something or state. The, I, the, um, the case that's happened historically is uh, the state legislature and the state governor send two different electoral votes to Washington, D.C. That's happened several times, actually, in our history. Most, re- you know, the most famous one, the 1876 election that resulted in the Compromise of 1877. So I said, you know, this is what a real dispute is. And if President Trump's uh, supporters just say, oh, we're going to appoint electors and we think it's a dispute, I'm going to say that's not enough. There has to be an institution, a court, a governor, a legislature that says there was fraud or there was a problem. A and, finding by yeah. a body. Yes. You can't just claim it because <laughs> by your reelection committee. And I said, unless. And so after I think about middle of November, after you start seeing all the votes come in and the electors uh, starting to get appointed, I said, it's obvious there's no dispute. And that's what you should say. And then you don't even have to reach the harder constitutional question of who decides if there is a dispute. Yeah, so I don't know how I got quite outed because as an attorney, I was have quite happy for that. Excommunicated? <laughs> have you been Have you been excommunicated by the uh, by your, your by the Trump, Trump people Trump, by a Trump uh, friend, or, or you're keeping it from them? So they <laughs> no. Well, this is the interesting thing. So as attorney, and I treated the vice president's office as my client. I never said anything about this to anybody. Okay. And then okay. on the day that Pence came out with his letter, with his opinion, saying I'm calling the election for Biden, I have no discretion. They said I had given them the advice for it, so they broke the attorney-client privilege on me. So, yeah, they, they actually it was the vice president's office told the New York Times that I had given them the advice along with um, Mike, Judge Mike Ludig about why they had to call the election for, uh, for Biden. We did a book event with Attorney General Barr last mm-hmm. week in which he referenced uh, those two opinions as, as being, you know, uh, prevailing and appropriately prevailing. Tiny, tiny contribution compared to what he did. Okay. Because you remember Barr was, you covered this, right? The Barr's the one who definitively said there's no factual evidence of any fraud. And once, I mean, that should have settled it, actually. Yeah. 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 He, he really did a great service to the republic. <clears throat> Now, uh, last question about our conference. We had a pretty uh, vibrant conversation about um, uh, race preferences in emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think there will be a big uh, uh, reversal of the lower court decision in the Harvard, um, you know, I think it's Harvard and North Carolina mm-hmm. case, mm-hmm. Um, or, or is the court only going to do one, one really big thing? This <laughs> I figure after they take all the crap for Roe, everything else is going to be like <laughs> yeah. patty cakes. Yeah. <laughs> But, um, I mean, if you were to say what are the, you know, the fundamental touchstone issues for progressives, the thing that explains their anger is that abortion is about identity and affirmative action is also about identity. So I think if you're going to see similar heights of anger and pressure on the court, it might also come with next fall's affirmative action cases. The reason I think they're going to come out uh, striking down Harvard and UNC Chapel Hill's policies is... Um, because in this issue, Chief Justice Roberts has always voted against racial preferences. You quoted his exact language in the K-12 through case where he said, you know, I'm against racial preferences in K-12 through desegregation. He 
uh, he he struck down part of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 a few years ago, which no one ever thought the court would do. So I, unlike abortion, I think his track record is ex, is very clear yeah. on racial preferences. And and the other five conservatives are not. Uh, is there any question about? I don't think so. And. Unlike Roe, this is one where the great majority of the American people would agree with the court. <laughs> I mean, right? They, this is like you can strike down these, uh, I think, I think unconstitutional racial preferences, and the majority of the country will approve what you did. So there's no political risk, really, for the court the way it is with abortion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, um, it's, these, are, these are big, tough issues, and the court is a different court than it's been in the past, and, and it can finally take them on in a serious way. Um, the other uh, court issue that I want to mention to you, you know, we we did a conference not so long ago on the jurisprudence of Justice Alito. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Justice Alito was in the building for mm-hmm. a dinner the night before, and he uh, spoke with the scholars that were there, and it was lovely to have him there. And then the scholars and federal judges did a really great conference, and I recommend it to our listeners. You can probably find it on our AI website. The I bet the book. downloads went up about two and a half weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> So uh, you, you, you know, you're a constitutional law professor at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, how is Justice Alito different from Justice Thomas? So uh, not to be harsh or critical, but I, I was interested in the conference AEI put on because the general account is that there is no sort of theme or clear jurisprudence by Justice Alito, that he's very conservative, but and that on some issues... Uh, for example, on this Roe opinion, the Roe, the, the Roe draft, the Dobbs draft, it's not actually that daring. It's like the it's like the summary actually of a lot of conservative criticism of Roe over forty years. Um, it's not. There's nothing. I, it's hard for me to say. There's something in there that's Alito, right? It's very it's, Bork or Scalia would have written very much the same opinion. In fact, it's very much a Bork Scalia opinion. Someone like a Justice Thomas or maybe Gorsuch who are interested in natural law, they might say, hey, maybe the fetus has a right to life under the fourth, right? That you could see that would be a really new direction. So I actually was always wondering, what is Justice Alito's jurisprudence that's different than sort of the Bork Scalia sort of, um, you know, we only enforce the written word of the Constitution and it's mostly their their jurisprudence. Uh, And of course, both of them were AI scholars, Mm -hmm. Bork Mm -hmm. and Bork, of course, for many years and Scalia in between government. It's at AEI they developed this idea that the most important thing was to get the court out of the business of identifying unwritten constitutional rights because it was so damaging to an exercise of raw judicial power, mm-hmm. as Justice White said. Mm-hmm. That's not where young conservatives are, <laughs> right? So yeah. young, young of whom Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, much more, they are actually much more interested in the idea of unwritten constitutional rights, but from a different source than Roe, the Roe kind of, but from more than natural law. And and well, you left Justice Thomas out. Where's well, Justice Thomas? So he out? actually, I shouldn't have left. I'm going to get in trouble with him again. He actually was the first one. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, he was, he, but he was, he like was ahead of them. Ago. Yeah, he yeah. was ahead of them. In fact, you could say, and one thing you're seeing now at the court is all these things. He, when he was even a young justice, he would throw out these little ideas. Like, and they were, some of them were quite radical. As a clerk, I would I would wonder why are you even writing this? This is not germane, or it's not really going to decide the case. No one's going to vote with you, but they all flowered into things. So, to give you a great example, uh, in that case that I mentioned, uh, striking down uh, racial preferences in government, Justice Thomas, I think, is the first justice in the history. Of Did he court. write the majority opinion? No, he wrote uh, just a concurrence. Okay, yeah, not the majority mm-hmm. opinion. 
but he wrote a separate opinion saying that uh, the Declaration of Independence was part of our law and, and was the principle, all men are created equal, that, struck, that stands against affirmative action. No justice had ever cited the Declaration of Independence as a legal document with authority in the Supreme Court because it's pre-Constitution. Mm-hmm. So to cite that means you think there are certain, right? Something else. Universal yeah. principles. It's also something. not part of the law. It's yeah. a different thing. Yeah, exactly. And so how do you distinguish Lincoln that? Lincoln used yeah. to always cite the Declaration. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very Lincolnian, very, actually. Yeah. And that, so that's an inspiration. But that was 30, almost 30 years ago, and now you're starting to see So the way I interpret that, Phoebe, um, is that this is the, the, the... You know, this guy's not a lawyer, <laughs> but his dad was one of the great lawyers in the last century. No, but the way so I He sounds like a lawyer to this me. Is the, this is the very, the, the super intellectual, um, cool kids uh, around Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch. And, A.K.A. And, just the AEI lunchroom table talk. And, and uh, <laughs> sort of uh, poo-pooing the, the sort of bread and butter uh, lawyer's lawyer, Justice mm-hmm. Alito, mm-hmm. who was always looking for, um, yes. what's the term, um, reliance? He's worried about reliance. Reliance interests. Um, and, um, and, I, and I think you should be nicer to Justice Alito. No, no, no. <laughs> I, 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 that's what I mean. I don't mean to be harsh. I mean, in a way, you could say he's a lawyer not driven by theory. You know, he's yeah. taking the cases as they come. He considers all the factors. You know, as, as, as you say, it's very lawyerly. Um, but then you're trying to say, what's the jurisprudence yeah, implies? Oh, there's I, some great theory. Oh, I see. Yeah, and, and there is no fancy jurisprudence. I, don't, I haven't yeah. found one in his cases. Yeah, I mean, I I've read it. All. Case very, but yeah, he's a very, this Dobbs opinion is really, a, I mean, if you want Roe to be struck down, it's the, probably the best thing that any judge has ever written in mm-hmm. favor of striking to overruling Roe. And just... Yeah, go ahead, Phoebe. Is at stake for? I mean, you mentioned that we don't really. Roberts is still kind of invisible in this opinion, mm. depending on whether he comes down with the conservatives or concurs in a in a milder fashion or signs on with with liberals. What does that kind of say about his oversight of the court? It seems to most people like he's kind of tried to steer away from some of the more controversial issues that now the majority has taken him into. Well, it's a, it's a good, it goes to the last discussion between the difference between maybe the. Bork Scalia years, and maybe Alito still represents that, and then the younger conservatives. So I think the younger conservatives very much dislike the idea of a judge, you know, hemming and hawing because of political pressure or the consequences of a decision. The voice of the people. What do you mean? (laughs) The democracy still stands. I mean, elected officials do have a role. Congress exists. Well, this is the interesting thing, right? This is throwing this all back to them. Yes. That's part of the matter. (laughs) But I'm saying the the younger ones, they... um, they almost see that as, uh, you know, bending. Yeah, yeah. As, uh, as, Very troubling. Yeah. <laughs> troubling. <laughs> they, they like judicial fortitude. Yeah. It's uh, in their own way. Um, they, they also rely on judicial power. You know, you're quite right, Robert, when you say, like, yeah, when you, um, you know, make this draw judicial power, sometimes the younger conservatives are just as guilty of that as the old liberals. Right. Yeah. So just last on this of the sort of court history. So Justice White is having a little bit of a, a resurgence. It's really? Justice White's language. Really? Raw judicial. Don't you think? 
I mean, yes, if well, you, he you did, read. Wait, wait, wait. You read. He did. You read the Alito opinion. Yeah, he, he quotes did, Justice yes. White twenty-five times. Yes, I, I'm sorry. I was thinking about. I wasn't thinking about Byron White. I was thinking like 19th century. But oh no, 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 you're Byron White. Right. Yeah. And I was just going to mm -hmm. ask you. You weren't on Justice Thomas and Justice White. Did they overlap? Or, yes, they would have overlapped. So, so uh, Justice Ginsburg took Justice took over Justice White's seat. Okay, so were you there when Justice White was there? Or were, was, were he was clear? a retired justice. Um, and I was there, I think, Justice Ginsburg's second year and Justice Breyer's first year. So that's how old I am, is that they are now all retiring or leaving. Well, are, are you, but you, you don't, are you saying that, I mean, I'm getting a sense that there may be your, there's some that are saying that Justice White at long last deserves his place in the sun. He was right on Roe. And now he's being vindicated. And others are saying, ah, oh, you know, Justice White was kind of a pedestrian justice. What's your take on that? So I, I had a lot of admiration for Justice White, but he didn't, he would have been the guy who would have said, there's no jurisprudence. We're just lawyers. Decide it. So he famously, I'm not sure, it's apocryphal, but he famously said, Reasoning is for wimps. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. very much of white, because like, Justice White, right? He was a great running back, a tough guy, right? He he was a hey, pro football back. player. He was a Heisman Trophy. Yeah, player. he was a pro football player while leading he was rusher in, in the NFL two years in yeah, a row. So he was, and he served in the Navy in World War II. See, even around the road scholar. Yeah, yeah. So he, he was, was a tough guy, yeah. and so he was famous for. Um, and I think J.S. Rehnquist had this view too. Is um, the only thing you're doing by writing opinions that have any reasoning or length to them is that you're creating mischief in the lower courts. So keep it short and brief. So Justice White was, uh, you know, famously anti-Roe, but he never really issued a, you know, lengthy explanation of why. He did, you know, write a few, it's just, a few quotable lines. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, John, what are you working on now? What, what's, ah. Where are you going from here? This is fun to talk about the court ah. and Justice Thomas, but... What, what, is, what do you really want to say to our listeners about your upcoming work? Uh, so the book I'm working on now, I'm going to call Hamilton's Victory. And it's going to be a book about uh, Alexander Hamilton's constitutional thought, which no one's really written about. And I'm going to argue that despite all the, I, and I haven't watched the Broadway musical. Uh, I, I'm so upset. They stole, all my, the they stole all my material. They stole all my material. I got to wait for it to actually to die down so that I can write about You're, it. What know. are you, one of the only people? <laughs> one, you never saw it? One or two people that have never seen it. Do you know the song even? <laughs> not really. Oh, no. yeah. But uh, yeah, rap's not my thing. Unlike you, Robert. Oh, no, really no, 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 no. But my argument is going to be that um, actually, Hamilton won on all these major constitutional issues. We don't live in Jefferson's Republic, even though Jefferson has the monument and where, you know, the country has a lot of Jeffersonian rhetoric. But if you look at the country we are today and why it was successful, it's because of Hamilton's constitutional theories, which get ignored because people are so interested in his he's a man of action, you know, his relationship with Washington and his actions as Treasury Secretary. But I think actually I'm going to argue that the most important thing he did was his uh, you know, to write down his constitutional views. And we would never would have had a Lincoln or an FDR uh, without Hamilton first. That'll be, that'll be great. I can't wait. And what about non-delegation authority? Didn't you come ah. out with a re recent volume? Yeah. That is the courts going to be the court's Bible as they take on that topic. <laughs> so, so Peter Walson and I, you know, we put together this editive on for AEI Press just came out a few months ago. Uh, the non-delegation doctrine, it sounds boring, but it's not boring. <laughs> it is uh, how much power can Congress give to the agencies? Could Congress just say, just regulate the environment? We don't really want to know what you do. You just have all the power. 
does the Constitution say there's a limit? So the court itself has been saying there's got to be a limit, but no one can figure out the right principle and test to apply. So we got 10. This is a, I think this is a great thing for AEI to do. We beat everyone else, too, is to say, well, let's ask 10 leading scholars. What should the court's test be? Give them the option so they don't just sit there and say, we can't do this because we can't think of the best test. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think actually, in fact, this is a, you know, I'm hoping. It's a great, it's a great product. It's I hope one of the great things we, AI has yeah, done. Yeah, exactly. It's like what we should do. And I'm that's hoping we, we do more things. That's what think things. tanks are for. Yeah, exactly. I, 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 an academic wouldn't really, you know, wouldn't do this all, you know, 10 chapters, 10 different tests, right? It needs a think tank's focus on what's important. Phoebe, anything more for John on Justice Thomas, the conference, the court, Roe v. Wade? What young people should do. (laughs) (laughs) Phoebe, you should go to law school. (laughs) Not for me. (laughs) Oh, wise woman. I've already gotten it all from here. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I was going to say, you've already learned it all. You might as well just get the degree now. (laughs) No, but this has been great. Well, John, it's great having you. Thank you very much for helping us uh, uh, develop a strong relationship with Justice Thomas. And um, we're looking forward to your interview tonight. And I'm sorry I got to sort of try to get get out all the surprises in advance. (laughs) But the real surprise will be, or the benefit will be, what Justice Thomas says in response to your questions. Exactly. And, um, And again, thanks, listeners, for listening in. John, you, thanks for being here. Phoebe, uh, live from Dallas, it's uh, banter. It's Friday night. (laughs) The 13th. That's right. That's right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.